Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring everything weird, fringe, and mysterious in the world. Today on the show, we're going to go over a declassified CIA document called The Adam and Eve Story by Chan Thomas. And don't let the name pull you, it's actually, it's not dogmatic. Um, and it's, I mean, the CIA did classify it for a reason, so let's try and dig into it a bit and see if we can find anything there. The episode's going to go into some crazy geology that suggests that cataclysms might just be like a natural cycle of the planet Earth, and that humanity still has a lot to discover concerning our past and the history of our planet. We're going to get into possible advanced ancient civilizations and all that kind of kinds of good stuff. So, let's get into it, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. This is this is the way. This is the way. In 1965, one of the world's leading geologists penned a document that the CIA quickly swept up to become classified and hidden from the public. What makes this perplexing beyond the dystopian element is the fact that it was a document called the Adam and Eve story. Flood myths and Adam and Eve stories are found in a lot of ancient civilizations specifically the earliest forms in the Sumerian version that at least I know of. But few in today's world other than the religious would ever take such myths as more than just that. Myths. If you're religious, that's fine. But I'm talking about like, um, just average people. So why would the CIA classify something like this? Seems kind of ridiculous, right? Why would this document written by a geologist be rated? Knowing what we know about today, uh, about the corruption of federal agencies and MKUltra, you know, I could go on and on and on about like the messed up stuff that's happened behind the scenes. But it's not too hard to think that the action could have been personal. I mean, MKUltra has been proven factual and the CIA was never held accountable. So these people can basically do whatever they want without any repercussions, historically. But what if there was something more to this? What if there was some legitimate existential threat? The only reason we even know about this document is in 2013, because uh, back then the CIA finally released a heavily censored and redacted version of the document that's actually available on the CIA website, where I got it myself. Well, I actually got it from the Arm Trotsky on the Discord server, but the link led me to the CIA website. And thanks, by the way, man, if you hear this, you're always very helpful. But you might think, well, if 
the document is so heavily sanitized, is it even worth looking at? Absolutely. Let's see if we can gaze between the lines and put together maybe a bigger puzzle, I don't know. At least uh, we can look at this in speculation, not objectively. This geologist was at the top of his field back in the day, and his name is Chan Thomas. And what he predicted is something I've talked about before, a cyclical cataclysm on the planet Earth that has always wiped out humanity to near extinction every time it happens. Now, first and foremost, I want you to remember not to get paranoid about any of this. Technology changes, science changes, information changes, geology changes, and modern science doesn't necessarily support this theory. And in the big picture, none of this matters. Don't get me wrong, the CIA did classify this for a good reason, which I will later go into more depth about. Just remember that people have been telling us that the world is about to end our whole lives. So it's just another Tuesday for us, right? Anyway, once the cycle comes and goes, it sends humanity into a new stone age, with all past civilizations shifted beneath the seas and other geological folds, with civilizations like ours becoming the new Atlantis, only remembered in myth and legend. Jesus becomes like Osiris, and America becomes like Lemuria, half-forgotten myths passed down orally over countless generations and ever-evolving from one lip to the next year. The idea's got kind of a grim beauty about it. Here's the intro to the document. Quote, With a rumble so low to be inaudible, rowing, throbbing, then fuming into a thundering roar, the earthquake starts. Only it's not like any earthquake in recorded history. In California, the mountains shake like ferns in a breeze. The mighty Pacific rears back and piles up into a mountain of water, more than two miles high, then starts its race eastward. With force of a thousand armies, the wind tacks, ripping, shredding, everything in its supersonic bombardment. The unbelievable mountain of Pacific seawater follows the wind eastward, burying Los Angeles and San Francisco as if they were but grains of sand. Nothing, but nothing, stops the relentless, overwhelming onslaught of wind and ocean. Across the continent, the thousand-mile-per-hour wind wreaks its unholy vengeance everywhere, mercilessly, unceasingly. Every living thing is ripped into shreds while being blown across the countryside and the earthquake leaves no place untouched. In many places, the Earth's molten sublayer breaks through and spreads a sea of white-hot liquid fire to add to the Holocaust. Within three hours, the fantastic wall of water moves across the continent, burying the wind-ravaged land under two miles of seething water coast to coast. In a fraction of a day, all vestiges of civilization are gone, and the great cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, New York, are nothing but legends. Barely a stone is left where millions walked just a few hours before. A few lucky ones, who managed to find shelter from the screaming wind on the lee side of Pike's Peak, 
watched the sea of molten fire break through the quaking valleys below. The raging waters follow, piling higher and higher, steaming over the molten earth fire and rising almost to their feet. Only great mountains such as this can withstand the cataclysmic onslaught. End quote. Pretty wild, right? And that's just the first page, basically. What's interesting to note is that according to some theorists, there were actually up to seven people who authored the document. Chan Thomas was only the official person who had their name put on the book, and the CIA and FBI went on to interrogate the other authors and freeze their bank accounts while picking apart every aspect of their lives with tweezers for some reason. You can give that kind of whatever credibility you want, but there's not much to support that theory. However, what these theorists do get right is that there literally is no original version of the text. You will find hoaxes of people claiming that it's the original text on eBay, trying to charge like ridiculous amounts of money for it and whatnot, but that's just good marketing for scam artists. There is no original version though, other than the, well, I mean, the CIA probably have an original version locked away somewhere. But for us, there is nothing but this redacted, censored version. I'm just going to stick with the more widely accepted version of the geologist Chan Thomas being the sole author. But the text paints a pretty horrifying picture, to say the least, right? It's basically an almost absolute apocalypse. And it's not just North America that gets vaporized. Even the Andes Mountains in South America are not high enough to spare anyone from the cataclysmic violence. In the span of a day, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil are all shaken so horribly by earthquakes and burned by molten earth fire, then buried under turbulent seas that quickly turn the landscape into a frozen hell. Afterward comes the annihilation of Europe, Scandinavia, and Africa. What few man-made monuments remain are buried under earth or sea. Most of Asia and the islanders suffer the same fate, with basically the entire foundational crust being swept away and leaving the majority of the continent below sea level and the rest to just a, just a frozen wasteland. It's interesting how fire, ice, water, they all mix together, wind, like all the elements, earth, they all mix together to, at once to completely rearrange the planet. However, east of the Urals in West Siberia, there are survivors as well as scattered remnants of survivors pretty much all over the planet in very small numbers. You can call them lucky to have survived or unlucky to have survived. Both are correct. In other places, after the seven days of cataclysm, the rare survivors see a world completely alien to the one that they knew before, and a new stone age has begun. All the continents find themselves shifted around, and places like Greenland and Antarctica find themselves in a torrid zone, and all their ice melting from the tropical heat. In less than 25 years, the ice caps are completely melted, and all the oceans around the world rise by an astonishing amount of 200 feet. The torrid zone is then covered in fog for generations. 
from the enormous amounts of moisture poured into the atmosphere by the uh, by the melted ice caps. Which strangely reminds me of a lot of ancient myth type stuff as well as the the beginning of the original Dark Souls game, the intro. But it all does kind of settle down to somewhat of a familiar earth eventually. Just totally different than the one we got today. Australia is now in the North Temperate Zone and has a handful of survivors that will go on to become one of the new civilizations like the in the new world history like uh like sumerians i guess or something like that i'm just giving an example one of the first ancient civilizations of the new history and new york los angeles all the great american cities they are all covered in miles and miles of mud forgotten other than the tales a few survivors may tell each other which turn into legends. Oddly enough, though, the geologist says that Egypt remains mostly intact, still being the land of the ages, and the commonplace of our time becomes the mysterious Baalbek of the new era. So in this short time, the poles change, the oceans change, the atmosphere changes, and once again, humanity finds itself in a new game file after the reset button has been pushed and our current civilization joins the ranks of Noah, Adam and Eve, Atlantis, Mu, Olympus, Zeus, and Vishnu in the collective unconscious of humanity. Pretty trippy stuff, right? The document goes on to ask what Noah, Adam and Eve, Vishnu, Osiris, and all that, what do they all have in common? They all join hands in the next cataclysm and walk among us, which is an interesting idea to think about, I like. The geologist then names many scientific minds who came before him, who have all gone into great detail about the patterns and cycles hidden in plain sight. And these people go all the way back to the 1700s, which is interesting considering how primitive our knowledge was back then. Not even that long ago, all things considered. I'm not going to go into detail about all these people and what they got to say, because it's pretty easily summed up as, quote, reoccurring catastrophe hypothesis that geologists have been talking about for centuries now. The reason why not a lot of people know about it in mainstream is, as it's stated in the document, every time the cataclysmic concept has come to life, the beast has been stoned, burned at the stake, beaten to a pulp, and buried with a vengeance. But the corpse simply won't stay dead. Each time, it raises the lid of its coffin and says in sepulchral tones, You will die before I. In the book, The Lost Americans, Professor Frank C. Hippen says, This was no ordinary extinction of a vague geological period, which fizzled to an end. This death was catastrophic and all-inclusive. What caused the death of 40 million animals? The corpus delicti. In this mystery may be found almost everywhere. Their bones lie bleaching in the sands of Florida and in the gravels of New Jersey. They weather out the dry terraces of Texas and protrude from the sticky ooze of the tar pits of Elshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. The bodies of the victims are everywhere. We find literally thousands together, young and old, bull with dam, calf with cow, 
The muck pits of Alaska are filled with evidence of universal death, a picture of quick extinction. Any argument as to the cause must apply to North America, Siberia, and Europe as well. Mammoth and bison were torn and twisted as though by a cosmic hand in a godly rage. End quote. So, yeah, I guess this is much more of a thing among the inner circle of geologists, whereas everyone else is just kind of uh, see no evil, hear no evil, holding their hands over their ears, going la 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 la. <laughs> I can't hear you, but sorry about that. But seriously, this is pretty interesting stuff, and the CIA did not want you to ever know about this document, despite it being written by the biggest geologist of the day. Words mean nothing, it's actions that speak. And that they'd censor a document like this says a lot. Maybe not that they think it's an actual prediction of a coming apocalypse, but fear of the chaos or destabilization it may cause to the American public. Both could be valid threats to spy masters. Anyone who knows anything about history knows that much damage can be done from prophets of doom. And it doesn't help that the geologist really knows his stuff. I mean, I honestly know next to nothing about geology, but he sounds like he really knows what he's talking about. Obviously he was the biggest geologist of his day. Gotta remember though, this is all just a hypothesis. Geologist Chan Thomas says the first step in putting together this document was to gather all of the known, accepted data from as many earth sciences as possible. Stratigraphy, archeology, span anthropology, paleontology, radiology, oceanography, seismology, glaciology, and many other fields correlation of the data between the sciences gave the answers he claims. Although, there is enough data in each science to indicate that these cataclysms do happen. So that's not a hypothesis. There's not enough evidence to prove the theory, but the between science correlation showed indeed that the concept itself was true. Not only did it verify that the events have happened, but it disclosed when the last five cataclysms were and what positions the shell of the earth has been in for the last 35,000 years. This is interesting because a lot of the conclusions that I come to myself is that I believe in an idea of something, but not the literal ways they are represented by people, you know, such as Atlantis. I've said it before. I believe in the idea of Atlantis, but not the literal Atlantis myth that has evolved and been altered countless times over word of mouth over eons believing in the idea of something and not the literal things seems more intelligent and enlightened to me as well as many of my um pe the people that i look up to intellectually especially too in our world where 90 percent of everything is bullshit. don't get me wrong though i i think you know what i mean i wonder where the redactions are and the alterations and the censorship this is part of it where it says the cataclysm cycles is a hypothesis, but the concept is true. This part seems kind of like a good spot for that, but I don't know. The redactions and alterations could literally be anywhere in this document. There's also pages missing. Anyway, as it says in the document, after years of research, Cuvier's challenge had an answer. 
Yes, indeed, the cataclysms do happen. In the last one, he says um, there's been a lot of discoveries since this time period, but he says the last one was 6,500 years ago, and he claims it was Noah's flood. This is not the geologist that wrote this document, by the way. This is just one of his resources. Now, since then, this has been proven wrong, and the original Noah stories go pretty far back, way farther back than Hebrew lore with the Great Deluge, going back to the stories from Sumeria and Noah being called, um, I'm not going to be able to pronounce some of these, but Ziusudra, Atrasis, Upnapishtim. Aha, I pronounced that one right. And uh, Uta Napishti. Depending on the era, he goes by a different name, is in Mesopotamia. So we've learned a lot about the ancient past since Cuvier's time, but the idea is still relevant. Literal categories and labels always seem to crumble from decade to decade, but the idea remains relevant. If we take this at face value, it reveals a profound history of our species that has been hidden from us repeatedly and opens up the possibility of many advanced civilizations lost to time. The geologist says this opens up the possibility of civilizations 20,000 years or more advanced than our wildest dreams, and the possibility that prehistoric legends from Greece, Egypt, India, and South America are history, not legend, and that lost continents such as Atlantis or Hyperborea are very possible. He says a man named Vishnu lived through a cataclysm 70,000 years ago, or rather such a compilation of legends lived through 10 cataclysms or more. Who knows how long this has been going on, and humanity always survives to start over every single time. But you may be wondering if that were the case. Wouldn't there be evidence? Well, yes, but that evidence is miles down in the Earth's crust, or at the bottom of the ocean. Each one of these cataclysms would most absolutely destroy all prior evidence of humanity. Almost. We'll be right back after a quick break. You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles. document he talks about how these cataclysms could have a, a decent amount of different reasons for naturally existing like maybe it just keeps the earth healthy in some way or it could actually just be a natural way of handling overpopulation but it definitely does do a good job at hiding any evidence of a prior civilization 
and this theory may seem perplexing concerning our modern archaeology and anthropology. And yeah, it doesn't add up. But we got to also remember just how often the narrative changes and how just a single discovery often throws myriad wrenches in the gears of how the machine told us how it worked before. I mean, I still see people who talk about ancient humans all the time and not even mention the 300,000 year old homo sapiens that were discovered in a cave in Morocco not that long ago. And that won't, well, it was a decent amount of time ago. It was actually years ago, like back in 2016, if I remember correctly. So it takes a long time for everyone to catch up. And by the time everybody catches up to the new data, the new information, there's usually new information that changes everything that came before. So everybody has to catch up again. It's a never ending cycle. And you know, it's also a business with prestige, power plays, egos, and an establishment hell bent on maintaining power just like any other. But slowly everyone does catch up. It just takes decades, it seems. I'm sure you've read about or seen how they demonize anyone who goes out of their little box. Look up what they did to the guy who discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, or the guy who had the idea for um, Continental Drift, or the guy who came up with the idea of bacteria and that maybe surgeons should wash their hands. Pretty basic stuff, but revolutionary in its time that got a lot of hate. It's the same story throughout history. All these people were demonized and all these people proven right in the end. Decades or even centuries pass or even after their own deaths before it's proven that what they said was a fact. And I'm not trying to say what's true or not true concerning this stuff, this document, just that often as not, establishment powers are irrefutably proven wrong. And there's far more we don't know and don't understand than we do by an astonishingly vast degree. I mean, there was a time where you'd be burned at the stake for saying that the sun was the center of the solar system. And those witch hunts still go on to this day, just less fiery. I mean, get this, in the 1800s, a guy came up with the idea that electromagnetic fields surrounded the Earth. But everyone thought he was crazy. However, it was discovered to be factual in the 20th century. Just saying. And there is a vast litany of these tales throughout history. I should probably make some content specifically covering these guys who were demonized in history but turned out to be right. Anyway, I'm sure you get my point. Got a little off topic, sorry about that. But what triggers the cycle? Geologist Chan Thomas says that this is the most elusive and mysterious part of the whole puzzle. Spiritual people could go into ideas concerning prophecies and happenings in the heavens and whatnot, but Chan says this is out of the question for him, and he dedicated himself to finding something that could trigger the cycle that did not violate the laws of nature and had to be a natural part of Earth's ordinary structure, which disrupts the Earth's inner electrical magnetic structure whenever it happens. He goes through theories of sunspots that could disrupt Earth's inner electromagnetic structure or solar storms, which some modern doomsday prophets make money from scamming people, but this was not the case. While solar storms could absolutely cause havoc on Earth, it could not trigger the cycle, just cause electrical technology to poop out or go haywire and stuff like that. It would not alter the electromagnetic currents of the Earth itself, which 
seem pretty set in their ways, other than specific circumstances. Now, the geologist says it is because of nature's power plant, quote-unquote. The energy structure of an atom is identical to a rotating planet, to a blue-white star, to a galaxy, to a supergalaxy, to all the levels of supergalaxies, including a universe, and even more. Old claims, but, um, I mean, they do seem to go along with myriad esoteric ideas, which is kind of interesting. Macrocosm, microcosm kind of thing. As above, so below, and whatnot. He says that a neutron that has escaped from its parent atom's neutral zone will separate into particles, and a star through a sunspot gives off neutral matter, which explodes as it becomes energized. So a galaxy gives birth to an exploding star when a dead star escapes from its neutral zone. In the center, as a dead galaxy explodes when it escapes from the central neutral zone of its parent supergalaxy, a planet, therefore, must act the same at its energy level, which didn't make sense to me and I had to read it a bunch of times. I hope it makes sense to you. He states that every few thousand years, neutral matter escapes from the 860-mile radius inner core into the 13,000-mile-thick molten outer core, and there is a literal atomic explosion in the center of the Earth. The explosion in the high-energy layer of the outer core completely disrupts the electrical magnetic structure in both the molten outer core and the outer 60-mile-thick molten layer. The ice caps are allowed to pull the shell of the Earth around the interior, with the shell of molten layer lubricating the shift all the way. So it is not that ice is a matter of advancing or retreating, it's that different areas of Earth are in polar regions at different times for different durations of time, and the changes between positions taking place with the changes between positions taking place in a fraction of a day, and the evidence for this is found all across the planet geologically. And um, yeah, this is really fascinating stuff, I hope it made sense to you. But the document gives off many examples. This is kind of the more science-y part of the episode. If you don't feel like hearing them, go ahead and just skip ahead a bit. But I found them really interesting, and I know a couple listeners who would be very interested in hearing them too. These examples are the Beresovka mammoth, frozen in mud with buttercups in its mouth, the ages of the gorges below Niagara Falls and St. Anthony's Falls, the uninterrupted years of evolution on the Galapagos Islands, over 11,000 years. The sudden end of the Laurentian Basin ice cap in Canada, about 11,500 years ago. The geological datings in the Murrumbidgee River Basin system in Australia, showing the end of an ice cap there about 11,500 years ago. The age of fossil bones taken from the Wilshire Boulevard tar pits, over 11,000 years. The end of the Wisconsin ice cap, about 29,000 years ago. The sudden 200-foot rise of the oceans all over the world, 6,000 to 7,000 years ago. The sudden rise of the St. Lawrence Riverbed, 6,500 years ago. The changing levels of the shoreline in the Hudson Bay. The granite blocks from the Alps, sitting on the easter slopes of the Wara Mountains at 4,000 feet above sea level. The great legendary and Fraser's uncovering of over 8,000 separate inundation survival legends in the Malay Peninsula region. The Fajark March in Australia, 
which shows a quick extinction of a civilization 11,500 years ago. The Piri Reis map, showing the North Pole in the Sudan Basin. The Egyptian water clock, showing agreement with the Piri Reis map. Granite on top of a mountain around Death Valley in California. The great stratifications of the Grand Canyon, Painted Desert, and Badlands. Each layer showing it to be deposited there, suddenly, by fantastic amounts of water. The computable age of the Antarctic and Greenland ice caps, about 6,500 years. The present growth of the Antarctic ice cap, about 293 cubic miles per year. The legends of the primitive man in Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of South America of the day the sun set in the wrong direction. The legends from primitive man in Peru of the day the sun stood still. The legends from the Malayan and Sumatran Aborigines of the long night. Sounds just like Game of Thrones. Remember the generational mist I said happens after the cataclysm earlier? The carved death, earth strata, count in Wenshaw, Minnesota, and Hackensack, New Jersey. The prevalence of jade in Asia, which is a material heaved up from the mantle, near equatorial pivot points during a cataclysm. The fantastic evidence of a burgeoning tropical population in Arctic Siberia and Alaska, completely wiped out in a fraction of a day. The similarity of languages the world over, from Polynesian Greek to Egyptian to Mayan to Eskimo to Yakut to Asian and more. The correlation of ice ages and quick extinctions the world over. The survival of primitive life at the equatorial pivot points, the last two being the Malay Peninsula and the Galapagos, now rife with lizards. The existence of a coral reef on the floor of the Arctic Ocean. And more and more and more, giving us a historical picture of the Earth's shell during the past 35,000 years. And you know, any even more, uh, even more has been discovered since then. I don't think they had half the knowledge when this document was written on Sumeria and older civilizations that we've found out more about over the past couple decades. I know that was a lot of examples from the text, but I found them all pretty interesting. And there have been an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows different areas have been at the North Pole, which are right now not there, such as the Arctic Ocean 6,500 years ago. The Sudan Basin, 11,500 years ago. The Hudson Bay, 18,500 years ago. The Caspian Sea, 29,000 years ago. And even ridiculously, Wisconsin in the United States, 35,000 years ago. So our planet really does like to switch things up from time to time. The geologist says that the last time the Earth hit the reset button was around 11,550 years ago, and says that it's interesting how the world described in Genesis 1 of the Bible would resemble how the world would look after a cataclysm. He then goes into who could have written Genesis and what language was it written in originally, because the Hebrew we know today is not the original, and it's absolutely not the original language that the story was written in. He actually settles on Moses, who was raised Egyptian, and had access to secret texts long gone from history thanks to the passing of the archives of Egypt and Alexandria, 
Heliopolis, and Sias. He says the Ten Commandments are a condensation of the 42 questions of Osiris for entering the afterlife, and Egypt did have knowledge of the ancient lost civilizations before the Cataclysm. I mean, this is supposedly where the Atlantis myth from ancient Greece even came from, which is actually talked about by scholars basically all over the ancient world as well. However, there really is no real proof that Moses wrote parts of the Old Testament, but it is very interesting to think about. But he also says that the Naga tablet writings, um, which do still exist in one form or another, at this point in time would definitely exist in the elite circles of the ancient world, especially ancient Egypt. So a lot of history we will never know about was put to the torch, but back then was still accessible, especially by the elite. And you know what I mean about the Naga texts, what we have left is very, very like next to nothing compared to what they had back in the day. He then goes into detail about how in 586 BCE, Jerusalem was sacked and all Hebrew records, including their laws and records of the Old Testament, everything were burned along with the temple at Jerusalem. So the Adam and Eve story and all Genesis and the Old Testament and whatnot was not seen in writing for some time and for a while was just passed on verbally. And on top of this, when it was eventually rewritten down by Ezra to five scribes, the translations have not been literal translations in English. For example, in Genesis, the wording without form and void would more likely and accurately read raging inundations and horrendous winds, which is obviously totally different. So a lot of what we have concerning this ancient tale was passed down orally for a while and reconstructed later, with many words being found consistent with glyphs in the languages of prehistory. Chan Thomas says that the original Adam and Eve stories were probably originally written in glyphs of Naga, the predominant Eastern Hemisphere language of 11,500 years ago. This language is nearly identical to ancient Mayan, which is very interesting and doesn't make a lot of sense, but it looks like this prehistory language is the progenitor of many languages of the ancient world. These Naga tablets were the absolute treasure of the ancient world, and Egypt absolutely had many of their own back before the destruction of a lot of human history across the planet. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I don't really want to get sidetracked though. And uh, since pretty much all languages came from them, the tablets were pretty universally easy to read across the board. The words for the glyphs can be found all across all the languages of the ancient world. Now, issues could arise from people who could not read the glyphs accurately and instead took them literally, which has happened in our civilization countless times throughout history the wrong people who don't understand it, analyze it and whatnot, translate it. Chan Thomas suggests, though, Moses had access to these Naga tablets, or at least a tablet, one of the original early ones. Neither Moses nor Aaron, his brother, most likely could read them accurately and instead took the glyphs literally. And the main issue here is they were never meant to be taken literally they could only be analyzed and seen accurately through symbolism.
Geologist Chan Thomas says that the document Moses and possibly his brother read are the Naga glyphs, and he or they read them literally. And the evidence for this is not absolute, but it's plausible. And not being able to read the symbolism of the Naga glyphs, as well as taking them literally, could have established the religious and social establishment of their day which would go on to further and further generations down the line. Interestingly, he says that this is what could have led to the collapse of the divine feminine and the removal of Asherah, El's wife, from their religion. El is uh, the Hebrew god, god with the capital G, FYI. Early on, also called Elion. But looking at women as the source of the original sin could have come from this. And Chan Thomas does throw out some convincing evidence, but does say that this is a could-be situation. So any religious people listening to this, you don't have to be polarized by this. You can just ignore it because it's just his hypothesis. But all that stuff isn't found in the Sumerian versions of all that at all. The original sin stuff seems to be unique to the Hebrew culture and then its offspring, Christianity and Islam. And um, Ezra dictated the entire history and scripture from memory passed down orally to five scribes, which is the genesis we have today. But it appears evident, as the geologist states, that he had no idea that 5,000 years transpired between Genesis 1 and Noah's flood. He says that Genesis and Noah's flood are actually, they represent two different cataclysms. The lineage of the high priests from Aaron to Ezra differs in generation numbers, 17 or 20, and from Noah to Jesus, 51 generations. So it seems like there are missing generations from Adam to Noah in the Aaron to Ezra versions of things. The geologist suggests the man from Genesis and, you know, Adam. They're actually two different things that were squashed together over time. And that seems kind of interesting since uh, in Hebrew Kabbalah texts, Adam is looked at as all men and Eve as all women. It's like, it's symbolic. So that's kind of like a cool link, but he's not talking about that. What he's getting at here is pretty much just there. There's a lot more to all this Adam and Eve story stuff. And he's absolutely right about that, at least concerning my own knowledge on the subject. I had no idea growing up that the the Genesis story was found in other ancient cultures that predate Hebrews. I'll also never forget being told when I asked about what the Nephilim were, not to ask about what the Nephilim were. And don't talk about it. <laughs> that just piqued my interest, though. You will probably be surprised that the Naga tablets have survived the eons of time, though not complete. 
early and it's just copies of copies of copies, but uh, not all was lost. I'd say about 99% of it was though. And they have even deeper roots in the mythology of Hindu tradition. Helena Blavatsky got a lot of her stuff from ancient beyond ancient Hindu stuff. But just what were these glyphs that Moses could have translated literally instead of symbolically? Well, the specific Naga glyphs found in the Genesis story are cherubims, angels, man, fruit, rib, woman, serpent, Adam, sleep, tree, and flaming sword. And bonus crypticness, you can also take these glyphs, analyze symbolically, and go check out the Sumerian version of Eden and see what you come up with. But I'm continuing. He says that our knowledge of the Naga glyphs tells us that the tree of life symbolized a mother continent, a parent civilization, lasting thousands of years longer than ours today. And an adorned serpent represents water or the ocean. A serpent entwined about the tree signified that the mother continent was surrounded by water. Genesis 3 actually describes Eve's heel on the serpent's head, showing her victory over the oceans. Cherubims were not the angels we know, but glyphs for legs or foundations. Instead of being placed in the Garden of Eden, one was taken away. And a Naga or Maya reading of the Egyptian Book of the Dead shows that cherubims of the north, east, south, and west were taken away, meaning that the foundations of the mother continent in all directions were removed or destroyed. It tells the story of the destruction of the past world. In the prehistory language, the flaming sword was the symbol of fire and earthquake. The fire signified what all legends of these cataclysms call earth fire, which is just basically um, molten lava. He describes it as the molten layer below the earth's 60 mile thick shell breaking through the surface during a cataclysm and uh, basically becoming a literal hell. It is uh, most probably also the origin of man's concept of hell, he says. But what about the fruit growing on the tree of life? That's usually a big deal in a lot of esoteric lore and whatnot. Big deal in religion. He says it represents the original humanity that settled the mother continent eons before Adam and Eve. Their eating of the fruit tells us that they are descendants of this original humanity of the mother continent. Eve eating the fruit first signifies that she was the generation after Adam, making her his daughter, which is actually super awkward and weird to think about concerning the context that you and I might have about Adam and Eve. But let's not get into that, shall we? There are three glyphs in particular that we should look at here, beginning with a sleeping or dead person, which oddly enough, uh, the glyph for sleeping and the dead were the same glyph, but the top figure is the face of a dead or sleeping person. The middle figure is male and the bottom female, representing the mother of all humanity. Curved lines run from the dead person or sleeping person and the male middle figure to the bottom female figure. And the curved lines normally represent ribs to people, hence the Bible story. Uh, Chan Thomas says that the glyph has been interpreted to mean that the middle figure is a male, was put to sleep, shown by the figure above, and a rib or ribs removed from him and given to the mother of humanity. We all know the story. 
The only problem with this theory is the sleeping or dead person at the top. The face is not a male, but a female. So there's no way that it could be Adam. Also in Naga, the curved lines do not represent ribs. And they represent lineage. They represent parentage, he says. So more reasonably. It seems the top figure is a dead female whose offspring is Adam and his offspring, Eve, the mother of all Hebrews, or humanity, from a non-dogmatic or religious perspective. The geologist says that in essence, the story as read from the glyphs would be that Adam and Eve, who lived in the Garden of Eden in the mother continent, were descended from the original humanity of uh, that land, which incidentally was surrounded entirely by water. Eve was Adam's daughter, and he was a widower. They realized that in order to survive, they had to leave and never return, for the motherland was to be destroyed by a cataclysm. They left, and afterward, the continent was destroyed in fiery magma and wind and waves because its foundation was lost and it sank beneath the ocean, which forever the serpent, the ocean, walked over the sunken continent on its belly, which puts that whole serpent symbolism into a different light. But pretty interesting stuff, huh? This, uh, this guy has some fascinating ideas and I know you are feeling the Atlantis vibe just like me. It also kind of reminds me of Conan the Barbarian lore, who like his buddy, the creator, I mean, like his buddy H.P. Lovecraft, just maybe knew a little bit more about the secrets of the world than they let on. That's just my imagination speaking, though. Uh, Conan lore is pretty cool. It's actually very esoteric and occult, which is weird for back then. I thought everybody was like, uh, well, those are always the outliers, but... Where they were from in New England, I would have never thought that they could be able to get into that kind of stuff without their entire social reputation and life being destroyed. Anyway, I'm getting lost in the woods. Let's talk about the event. I could go on into a lot more detail about the specifics of the science stuff and archaeology and things like that, but I don't want to bore you. If you'd like to read the document in full, I'll link it in the details. There are a lot of other little-known declassified documents on there that would make most normies blink in confusion, so if you're interested, go check it out. I feel like I should cover more declassified stuff that no one really talks about here and there for future episodes. Let me know if you'd like to see more of content like that. But the geologist goes on to say that there is still a massive puzzle to put all this together, and it doesn't look like we have any better of an understanding in our modern times at least in a way that makes a significant difference. If any of the landmass stuff doesn't make sense to you, gotta remember tectonic shifts and whatnot and continental drift. So we're not talking about the same earth here that we know today. If there was a map made of earth back then, when he's talking about it, it would look super weird to us. A connection I find really interesting is the Aztec mythology on how there are tons of apocalypses. Uh, I think the Aztecs and the Incas had this same sort of, sort of theme too, if I remember correctly, and that the Earth has been remade many times in different cycles. Did I already say that? But the geologist states that land masses, even continents, have been heaped up to the surface only to fall beneath the waves and then be 
heaped up back to the surface again and again over the millennia and gives examples such as Easter Island. I feel like maybe, I mean, the CIA made this whole document classified, but maybe if there was any truth to this, we should probably work on building a permanent satellite or, or something that can house humanity during the next cataclysm. I mean, the entire human race could all fit in Texas with miles apart from one another. We could do it if we all got along for two seconds. Or maybe, maybe the population purge is the whole point or something on a greater cosmic scale. Which sounds pretty messed up, but nature doesn't care about morality. All I know is I would totally go into space or colonize another planet if given the opportunity. We should probably work on doing that. Maybe survive one of these cataclysms to become like a... What's the levels of civilization? Like a class... Whatever the class of civilization that is above us. I forget the meter. Chan Thomas says that the great continent in the Pacific disappeared almost completely. However, Easter Island was the highest peak of the continent on the very edge of it, which dropped to remain on the Pacific Ocean floor for 5,000 years, to be heaved up again in the cataclysm causing Noah's flood, or an analogous myth to it, then to be heaved up again in the following cataclysm. What remained of the Pacific continent rolled to the South Pole, to be discovered by Mayan explorers as the last remains of their quote-unquote motherland, a frozen reservoir of mud at the bottom of the earth, millions of square miles in area. He also says that there was a great continent in the Atlantic as well. Only a large island was left in the west, while the ocean between there and Gibraltar to the east was left shallow, muddy, and impassable to ships. He also goes on to state that a thread of a clue concerning the great knowledge of that time came out when Captain Cook discovered the Polynesian Maori tribe in New Zealand, all the way back in the 1700s. They told him of ancient legends of Saturn's rings, and they hadn't even heard of telescopes, which kind of freaked everyone out, I assume. And the thing here is, the kicker is you can't see Saturn's rings with the naked eye. So how they possibly knew that Saturn had rings or even that there was a planet there, uh, your guess is as good as mine. The evidence in Tijuanaco shows that their once great and sprawling civilization was wiped out so suddenly that people were caught in the middle of their normal daytime activities by the catastrophic inundation. Further, evidence shows that this fabulous city suffered the same fate as Easter Island. Although the Rockies and Andes were created in the cataclysm, Tijuanaco was buried under the Pacific, where it remained for 5,000 years, then to be upheaved to its present altitude of 12,500 feet in the latest cataclysm. Which sounds crazy. <laughs> it's uh, pretty bizarre how so much can be shifted all over the Earth, but it's interesting how this aligns with a lot of people's theories about the last cataclysm being around 10,000 years ago such as Graham Hancock and others. I've talked about it before, and I'm sure you remember that this kind of, this is kind of a consistent theme concerning possible past advanced civilizations. This whole t around 10,000 years ago being the last cataclysm. The Mayans being the remnants of the old world pre-cataclysm is kind of new to me though. I have heard about it before from 1800s writers going off of stuff Madame Blavatsky said but never came across legitimate scientists like Chan Thomas talking about it. 
Chan says that the Mayan tongue lived on in scattered remnants. Polynesian tongues, Greek, Tacket, Egyptian, Eskimo, Nomadic, Asian, German, Native America, and pretty much just about all languages. The resurrection from the waters, Tao, lived on in many stories of a man who survived, later to become Ta'aroa, Tangora, or Tororas, depending on which tribe's legend you find. And yes, I butchered those pronunciations. But Adam and Eve could have sprung from the same story he suggests. He also suggests that many hints and clues are buried within mythology. And that symbolism is the key to understanding the clues and not looking at these tales in a literal sense. They're not meant to be taken objectively. This goes along with legitimate psychology and the work of one of my favorite psychoanalysts, Carl Jung. There is nothing that speaks stronger to the subconscious mind than symbolism, was my point. There's no better way to influence humans than through symbolism, because it communicates directly with the subconscious, and the subconscious basically, that's the pilot in charge, that's what actually runs your life. The conscious mind is only like in charge of 5-10% to 10 of a person's life, depending on circumstances. Which is also why 90% of what a person says actually doesn't even come out of their mouths. It's all about tone, body language, um, how certain words are pronounced or elongated or elaborated or you get what I'm saying, like flourished, whatever. But universally, when it comes down to all these ancient myths or like these stories, look at for the symbolism, not for the literal story. Quote, When Idra, king of the gods, had destroyed the titan who held the waters of the earth captive in his entrails, he returned to the heights of the central mountain with the song of the rains and running waters in his ears. But where his dwelling once stood, he saw only ruins and ashes. So he summoned Visvakarman, god of works and arts, and asked him to build another palace to match his powers. The architect set to work. Soon towers, buildings, and gardens rose among the lakes and woods. Idra urged him forward impatiently. Each day he called for some fresh marvel, new delight for the eyes. Walls more imperial, pavilions more richly adorned, statues greater in number and cunning. A fever seemed to burn in him. And Visvarkamen, exhausted by his labors, decided to lay a complaint before the creator of the world. Brahma received him, gave ear, approved, and went to plead his cause before Vishnu, the supreme being. He was promised. Soon a young Brahmin appeared at the king's palace and demanded an audience. Charmed by the light of his eyes, Indra granted the request. O king, said the messenger, thy palace shall be the noblest of all. These words were sweet to Indra's ears, and he rejoiced. Vishnu's messenger continued, It shall be the noblest of the palaces which the Indras before thyself sought to build. The king became uneasy and said, Dost thou say that there were other Indras other than Visvakamans before ourselves, other places before mine? Indeed, yes, the messenger answered. I have seen them. Moreover, 
I have seen the world arise and vanish, arise and vanish again, like a tortoise's shell coming out of infinite ocean and sinking back. I was present at the dawn and the twilight of the cycles, past counting in their numbers, even the Vishnus and Brahmas following one another without end. End quote. Brahmavarta Purana and Krishnajan Makanda, and now Egypt. Quote, O Salon, Salon, you Hellenes are but children. Hellenes are Greeks. There is no old doctrine handed down among you by ancient tradition, nor by any science which is hoary with age. And I will tell you the reason behind this. There have been and will be again many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes, the greatest having been brought about by earth fire inundation. Whatever happened, either in your country or ours, or in any other country of which we are informed, any action which is noble and great, or in any other way remarkable which has taken place, all that has been inscribed long ago in our temple records. Whereas you and other nations did not keep imperishable records, and then, after a period of time, the usual inundation visits like a pestilence, and leaves only those of you who are destitute of letters and education. And thus, you have to begin over again as children, and know nothing of what happened in ancient times, either among us or among yourselves. As for those genealogies of yours which you have related to us, they are no better than tales of children. For in the first place, you remember one deluge only, whereas there were a number of them. And in the next place there dwelt in your land, which you do not know, the fairest and noblest race of men that ever lived of which you are but a seed or remnant. And this was not known to you because, for many generations, the survivors of that destruction made no records. End quote. Timaeus, priest of Egypt. So what do you think? Why would the CIA classify this document and keep it hidden for decades? I mean, it seems pretty tame compared to a lot of crazy stuff I've covered over the years. The fact that Chan Thomas was the leading geologist in the field at the time he wrote all this stuff adds a lot of credibility in my opinion. But what do you think the CIA took out? What happened to the missing pages, but more precisely, what was in the missing pages? What could the CIA have altered? Why was this thing classified for so many decades? Fascinating to think about, isn't it? Anyway, Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. You look for us and we're there. If you can, listener, please make sure to like, comment, or review wherever you hear this content. It greatly helps me out. And if you really, really like Cryptic Chronicles and you happen to be awesome, consider supporting the show on Patreon. For just a dollar, you can unlock full and censored shows with no ads or anything like that and be able to listen to basically months ahead of time podcast episodes as well as weeks ahead of time YouTube videos. 
pretty much all my content you get early, really early. Um, as well, I mean, the the main release on YouTube is like six months behind my Patreon releases. That's how much you get it in advance. And depending on the pledge, you can even do other awesome stuff like join the Discord channel. Uh, well, no, that just comes with a dollar. But uh, you can do other stuff like uh, come on the show, choose an episode, choose content for me to cover, stuff like that. It's awesome. You should do it. it really helps me. Blah, 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 blah. And as always, I'd like to thank my supporters. MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, Jimmy Woods, Rodius, Sophia Owens, Scott Wellman, Beware the Q, Ashley Thompson, Matt Poland, Johnny Wick, D.A.L. Adams, Danny Van Heck, Carnage, Jesse Leach, Austin Monday, Michael Graham, Ed Hawks, Trusty Old Senpai, Lex Lazarus, Brian Nolan, Jared, Matthew Lawson, Jismuk, Spacecoin, Gary Hetzel, and Tom Clerney. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. But most of all, thanks for listening. And as one of the greatest generals who ever lived once said, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing, or it can be a vibrant seed, giving rise to verdant forests and awakening sleeping giants.